Amen. <clears throat> well, we are going to dive right in because I have found that I have a lot to say about Acts chapter 11 today. I was not expecting to have this much to say, but I do. And so we're going to listen to it. We're picking up right where we left off last week. It's almost like this is part two of a two-part episode. And the first half of Acts chapter 11 was a piece of the same narrative as Acts chapter 10, the story of Peter and Cornelius and the dawning of this realization that God is doing something new in the church in bringing non-Jews into this movement that had previously been only Jewish. And so today's passage is sort of a group version of Peter's one-on-one encounter with Cornelius last week. These, this group of Jewish Christians in the church at Antioch who had been scattered away from Jerusalem because of persecution they'd been experiencing there, they start telling Gentiles the good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And lo and behold, these Gentiles start believing it. They trust that this is true. They believe in Jesus and they, they enter the church. So we could look at today's passage as a continuation of the story from last week. And there's another key moment And we can also look at it as another key moment in the fulfillment of a theme verse for the book of Acts. It came all the way back in chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus told his apostles, you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's the theme in the outline of Acts, the gospel moving out to the ends of the earth. And that is what's happening here. But we're going to focus on something slightly different today. It's not just the going out of God's mission, the progress of God's mission. We're going to focus quite a bit on this character of Barnabas. So Barnabas is showing up in this story for the third time in the book of Acts. He's appeared at a couple of other crucial junctures, kind of in a supporting role before. But here he takes on a much more central and significant role. And As he takes on that role, it's his personality that really seems to play a big part in who he is and what he does here. It's his particular gifting from God, his willingness to use that gift in the service of others that God uses to ignite the church's mission to the non-Jewish world. So this has a role to play in that overarching outline of the book of Acts, but we're going to look specifically at who this person of Barnabas is and what it was about his life that has something to inform our lives today. That particular gift and personality trait that he had was the gift of encouragement. When you read the book of Acts, you typically focus on these amazing, powerful signs and wonders that Jesus did through the Holy Spirit and through his apostles. But in that focus, it's a right focus to have it sometimes can lead us to forget that the early church was a minority within a minority. They were this fledgling little religious movement in a universe of competing worldviews, a universe of competing power dynamics. And the early Christians were at best viewed as kind of weird and suspicious. And at worst, they were viewed as dangerous. And on that end of the spectrum, they were viewed as people to be persecuted. So, even though there's all this amazing, powerful stuff going on in the book of Acts, something that these first Christians were in dire need of was encouragement. 
That was part of the purpose of those powerful signs and wonders to prove to these beleaguered believers that God was, in fact, with them. In many of the New Testament epistles that come after the book of Acts, they were written in part to do precisely the same thing, to encourage young churches or young leaders to persevere, to fight the good fight, to keep the faith, to run the race. I think encouragement happens to be a gift that we all could use a healthy dose of right now in life. We are living in a moment of intense discouragement and disillusionment. The 21st century American church enjoys ridiculously more safety and standing and social capital than the first century church did. But between the pandemic and social and political divisions and world events and scandals and conflicts within the church at large, there is so much discouraging news. And by no means is this this something that's limited to Christians. Survey after survey is revealing this deep crisis of depression and anxiety across demographics. And it's been intensified by the pandemic, but it's not rooted in just the pandemic. It goes back far beyond the pandemic to much bigger things. And I know that sounds incredibly bleak. Welcome to church this morning. We're glad you're here. But hidden in that discouraging news, there's an invitation for us. At this time that we're walking through of intense disorientation, the gospel message is something that can reorient us and re-anchor us in what is real and true and good and beautiful. The gospel is inherently a message of encouragement. Even though we and so many of our neighbors don't experience it that way from day to day. Well, That's where enters our friend Barnabas here in this passage. And his story in Acts demonstrates the power of encouragement. But it's not demonstrating it for us in terms of being a good moral example for us to follow. And it's not a broad, general kind of encouragement that just anybody could give, like warm fuzzies that you can pass along to somebody else. Barnabas is a portrait of a particular kind of encouragement. And the point of this passage is not ultimately to look at him, but to look at the God of encouragement to whom he is just a pointer and a signpost. So I want to start by just kind of sketching out a portrait of this guy. Who is Barnabas? Our direct knowledge of him comes mostly from the book of Acts. There were a couple other passages in the New Testament that refer to him. But as we go across those passages, we can infer a decent number of things about his personality, about who he was as a figure in the early church. We first met Barnabas back in chapter 4. We actually preached a message on this in the story of the early church's generosity in their community life. And from that story, Barnabas stands out as a picture of a joyful giver. And that's a facet of the encouragement that he's showing to us. So his real name is actually Joseph. But he he earns the nickname Barnabas from the apostles. It's a name that means the son of encouragement. And among all these amazing acts of generosity that are flying around the church at that time, Barnabas gets singled out in that story by name for selling a field that he owned and then giving the proceeds, donating the proceeds to the young church. His nickname gets mentioned in direct connection to this. And so you start to get a picture of this guy whose giving is so free and it's so full of joy that he lifts other people's spirits and he prompts them 
to give in the very same way. Barnabas is a, he's a key force in encouraging the church to be the sharing, giving community that it was. Well, then we, we meet up again with Barnabas in chapter 9 in connection to the story of Saul. So after Saul's dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, he has to escape the region. He has to go to Arabia for three years because now the Pharisees are out to get him. But when he returns to Judea eventually and he tries to connect with the church leaders who are in Jerusalem, those leaders are understandably pretty skeptical and they're standoffish. They don't want to meet with Saul because they don't believe that he's actually become a follower of Jesus. I mean, here's a guy who orchestrated a campaign of terror against the earliest Christians, arresting or murdering literally dozens and maybe hundreds of them. But Barnabas steps into the picture. And Barnabas believes in Saul. He trusts Saul. He takes a chance on Saul. And he personally brings Saul to the church leaders at Jerusalem, and he advocates for him. And that was what opened the door for Saul to eventually become Paul, the great missionary and the writer of so many books of the New Testament. Barnabas's role was to encourage the apostles to take a closer look at Saul by being his trusting advocate before them. And we can only imagine what a personal encouragement that was to Paul himself as Barnabas did that. And so that finally brings us to the passage that we're in today, Acts chapter 11. When Barnabas is sent to Antioch from Jerusalem to investigate these reports they're hearing of Gentiles starting to believe in Jesus, he became what we might call a discerning activist. I think the story highlights Barnabas being a discerning activist and his, his spiritual maturity in three different ways. First, he could recognize God's work when he saw it, recognize it. So based on his own growing faith, based on hearing Peter's story of meeting Cornelius and seeing what God was doing there, Barnabas was able to recognize that God was opening a new way. He was doing something new and he was bringing the Gentiles in to become part of the same body of God's people on the same basis as the Jews. Faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Well, second... Not only did Barnabas recognize God's work, but he had the capacity to reflect on what he saw. He apparently spent some time reflecting on what he knew to be true of God in Scripture and how the Holy Spirit was obviously working around him. And the result, verse 23 tells us, was that he was glad. Part of Barnabas' discernment, a huge part of it, was allowing joy to be at work in his heart. Barnabas was able to see and reflect on what he saw God doing, and when that prompted joy in him, he went with it. He allowed that to grow. And then third, after recognizing and reflecting on what God was doing, he was ready to respond. He seemed to know instinctively what was going to be needed as a response, to encourage and to equip these new believers. And he was already gifted for the first one, Right? He was a natural encourager. He encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of heart. But he knew that he was going to need some help with the second part, with the teaching and the equipping. So what does he do? He goes and he finds Saul. And he brings him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, the two of them are meeting with the church, probably in their homes, just getting together, encouraging them however they can, and also specifically teaching this newborn Gentile church. And they were so effective at it that Antioch becomes this place 
where the word Christian is coined. They are, they are growing so explosively, they're going so deep in their knowledge of God's word, they're becoming so set apart and distinct as a new movement in the world that they get a name attached to them, and it's the same name that we continue to have today, Christian. The summary description that's given to Barnabas here is no small thing. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. That is a high commendation, and it points to how he encouraged other people, being a good man full of the Holy Spirit. And then there's this little coda, this strange little story at the end of Acts chapter 11 about the, the prophet Agabus and this prophecy he makes about a fast coming into the, the Roman world. <clears throat> the church in Antioch believes him, including Barnabas. And so Barnabas helps alongside them to set up this fundraising drive to benefit the Christians, not just in their area, but back in Jerusalem. Now, Antioch was about to be hit by this very same famine, but this little community had become so full of encouragement that they wanted to help other people. It took courage to believe this message about a future event that they couldn't see yet. It took courage to collect an offering that they might themselves need. It took courage to accompany Saul back to the lion's den of Jerusalem because, remember, the religious authorities were still out to get him. And all of this was done for the, the sake of compassionate care for other people. Friends, that is encouragement, a courageous compassion. Now, there's more to Barnabas' story, too, that we haven't even hit in Acts yet. In chapter 12, we're going we're to see him as a willing mentor, bringing his cousin John Mark along for a missionary journey. He, he sees something in Mark. He wants to pour into him for the sake of this life-changing mission, and he invites Mark to be a part of the same thing. Later, in chapter 13, we're going to see Barnabas as a spiritual leader in his own right. And the way that he is a spiritual leader is by encouraging others. Antioch was becoming this place of prophecy and teaching, and Barnabas was a key part of that. And in his teaching, in his care, he was showing his capability for spiritual leadership so much that he's the only other person that the Holy Spirit sets apart alongside Paul for the work of being apostles to the Gentiles. All of that is the starting point for a very long section of the book of Acts in chapters 13 to 15, where Barnabas is now alongside Paul as what we, we could say is a faithful partner in ministry. There's another piece of being an encourager. He was Paul's constant companion through the entire first missionary journey. And then when they return to Antioch, he stays alongside Paul to cast vision and to stoke the church's desire for what God is doing out there in the world. All of that, those are all important pieces of how Barnabas was an encourager, but there's one more episode that's important for us to see. <clears throat> the last thing that we hear about Barnabas in the book of Acts, anyway, is in chapter 15, and it's kind of a painful story. But when we connect the dots of that story to other things that we hear about Barnabas in the New Testament, we can surmise that Barnabas was a contagious affirmer. In Acts chapter 15, there's this rift that opens up between Barnabas and Paul, and it has to do with his cousin Mark. Barnabas wants to bring Mark along on their next missionary journey, but Mark had deserted them halfway through the first trip, and Paul didn't want to risk that again. He didn't want to bring Mark along. We don't know the details of what happened, but they had such a sharp disagreement that these two close friends and, and partners in ministry, they part ways. 
Barnabas takes Mark and he heads off to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas and he heads up to the northwest into Asia. And it's a painful separation to read about. It's a breaking of fellowship. But the story doesn't end there. Years later, something clearly has happened and is still happening. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul writes to the Colossians while he's in prison, saying, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And if he comes to you, welcome him. Something's starting to change. And then some years after that, shortly before his execution in Rome, Paul is writing his farewell letter to Timothy. It's the letter of 2 Timothy. And he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Something, we don't know what, has obviously shifted over the years. Surely Mark himself has changed. He's demonstrating a a maturing faith in Jesus. And it's easy to imagine that Barnabas played a central role in that. Continuing to believe in Mark, continuing to take him along in ministry, continuing to give him opportunities. But something has also shifted in Paul here because he, he has to be able to see those changes in Mark and he has to acknowledge them in a way that overcomes the earlier hesitancy he had about Mark's immaturity. And so it's also relatively easy to imagine that Barnabas's relentless determination to see the best in Mark is something that rubbed off on Paul as well. His affirmation was contagious, and Paul caught it in a way that not only brought about reconciliation, but brought about an impact for the gospel. And so all in all, even though this guy, Barnabas, is not a super well-known figure in the early church, what we do know of him is remarkably consistent. And it paints a picture of someone who we would all want to have in our corner. Barnabas is an encourager. Now, even though he's this model of what it can look like to follow Jesus, the message of this passage cannot be boiled down to, hey, be like Barnabas. Be like that guy. But you wouldn't necessarily know that that's not the way you're supposed to go from hanging around the church for a long time. Some of you may be old enough to remember an old VBS or Sunday school song called Be a Barnabas. I did not grow up in the church, and so I blessedly managed to avoid a huge swath of Christian subculture that I believe included this song. But uh, not not everyone in our church uh, did get to avoid that. For example, Brandon. Because when I started to talk to Brandon about this passage a couple of weeks ago, he was very excited about the idea of singing the song, Be a Barnabas, here in the worship service. He floated that idea to Miles. Miles very gently let him down. But Brandon has agreed to perform it for anybody who wants to hear it right after the service today. So please go ahead and ask him. He's got hand motions to go with it, I believe. Well, since I did not know this song, I wanted to hear this song, so I went onto YouTube to see if I could find it, figure it out, listen to it a little bit, and decide that, no, I definitely don't need to do this in the worship service. I never did find the song, but what I did find was an avalanche of sermon videos with the title, Be Like Barnabas. Apparently, that's what we Christians want to take away from this passage anytime we read it. Now, I know I'm being a little snarky here, and I generally have a rule of not criticizing other preachers' sermons, especially when I haven't listened to them. But at the same time, I think it's telling 
that it's such a common impulse for us to read the Barnabas story and say, hey, be like that guy. It's true, he's a laudable figure. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And that portrait of him that we just walked through, it's, it's full of personality traits that we should all aspire to have. But there's always a difficulty in doing a character study of a biblical figure because the impulse is be like that guy or be like that girl. And the problem is that every major figure in the Bible, with the exception of Jesus, is presented as having some kind of flaw. Sometimes it's a minor flaw, like Mark flaking out and leaving the mission field halfway through. Other times it's a pretty major flaw, like murder, adultery, deceitfulness. With Barnabas, we don't really get a sketch of his dark side, unless you count the breakup with Paul. But still, all these biblical heroes are, at the very least, a cautionary tale to us, and at their very best, they're pointing us to somebody beyond themselves. They're pointing us to Jesus. So what we're supposed to see in Barnabas then is not primarily a model for us to emulate, but an imperfect reflection of God himself, the God who encourages, the God whose plan is fundamentally good news for all people. So what exactly is this biblical encouragement? Based on what we've seen in the person of Barnabas, it, it seems like it's got to be more than just saying nice things to folks and being friendly. There's a group of words behind encourage and encouragement here in the New Testament, and they're all related to one word that you might or might not have heard before. It's the word paraclete. It's a very Christian-y sounding word. The most famous use of the word paraclete is actually for the Holy Spirit. When Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as our counselor or our helper or our advocate, the word behind that is paraclete. But there are people who are called paracletes as well, including in the book of Acts. Peter is a paraclete in Acts chapter 2 when in his Pentecost sermon, he strongly encourages or urges the people to repent and to be saved. That's being a paraclete. Paul is a paraclete in chapter 13 when he goes to a synagogue that wants to hear him preach Silas is a paraclete in chapter 15 when he delivers the, the news from the Jerusalem council to a bunch of Gentile churches that they are now officially fully being viewed as full members of the people of God without having to become Jewish themselves. It is incredibly good news and he is the paraclete who comes to bring it. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit a paraclete four times in the Gospel of John. He's the one who is to be God's presence with us after, he, after Jesus ascends to heaven. The Holy Spirit is the one that is going to remind us of everything that Jesus had taught. The one who's going to guide us into all truth. The one who's going to give us God's peace. So encouragement, then, is to come alongside another person at whatever stage of life or wherever in their spiritual journey they're at and to point them from right there to God. Now, Scripture is replete with examples like that. I, in timing myself out, know that I don't have time to share those with you, but I'll, I'll point you to our community rule of life. And in the readings from this past week, including Psalm 126, Isaiah chapter 43, when you read those, it is filled with the sense of biblical encouragement. So I encourage you to do that. For now, though, what we need to spend a little bit more time looking at 
is the challenge that's in this. Why is it such a challenge for us to get and to keep and then also to share with others that kind of encouragement? Because like we talked about at the beginning and like probably all of us are experiencing in some way, discouragement is just so prevalent. It's so easy to feel that instead of the opposite. So why is living with and giving to others encouragement so hard to do? Among the many things that we could say here, I think one of the greatest challenges to this difficulty, or to one of the greatest challenges to this, is the difficulty to living in the tension of the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. When Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand, that's, he said that frequently in the Gospels, he was saying that God's reign as the rightful king of the world breaking the power of sin and Satan and death, it was finally entering. It was finally coming to pass. It was really here. But it wasn't all happening at once. Jesus' arrival did not suddenly put an end to all evil or injustice or pain. That didn't all come crashing down. Instead, through his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and then his work through the Spirit-empowered church, Jesus is working out that kingdom. It's not yet fully here, but one day he's going to return to bring that kingdom in its fullness. And so until that day comes, we are left with the challenge of having to navigate and live in that tension. And there's a danger in falling off on either side of that. And when we do fall off on either side, it's one thing that suffers is our encouragement. When we put too much emphasis on the already of the kingdom of God, we can live with or we can give others a false hope for what to expect in this life. Any kind of prosperity gospel or any, any sort of triumphalistic view of the Christian life or a, a Christian view of society, it, all, it falls into that camp of too much already. But on the other hand, when we put too much, too much emphasis on the not yet of God's kingdom, we don't live with enough hope. We leave insufficient room for God's presence and his work in this world, and it's a viewpoint that tends toward despair. It tends toward our making excuses for not being active participants in seeing the kingdom of God come more and more on earth as it is in heaven. It tends toward pulling back from doing anything about injustice or real-world problems. It tends toward an escapist theology where we just want to get away from this world since it's all going to burn in the end anyway. You see, neither of those is an accurate picture of the kingdom of God that was announced by Jesus. Instead, our challenge is to live in this unresolved tension of the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God at the same time. And friends, that is where true hope is going to be found. It's in recognizing that things are not the way they're supposed to be, but at the same time remembering that the kingdom of God really is here. It really has arrived and it really is active in Jesus. And that tension is where true encouragement is also found. It's not just telling the discouraged and the grieving and the traumatized to simply wait for heaven. You know, God's going to make it all better someday. And it's not offering the false hope that victory is going to be yours right now if you could just believe a little bit harder or a little bit better. Instead, the message is hold on. 
Keep holding on. I know this seems long. I know it seems confusing. I know it's painful. And I don't understand it either. But I am with you. I'm with you. And more important than that, God is with us. So the gospel is inherently a message of encouragement. And what I've just described here is even what we see Barnabas doing in this short narrative in Acts chapter 11. It says, when he arrived and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of heart. That's a beautiful vision, but it's also a somewhat general vision of encouragement. So what might real, concrete encouragement look like in our cultural moment? Well, there's never going to be an exhaustive list of this, but anytime we see a need for encouragement, anytime that we can be a paraclete, we're invited to to come alongside somebody, to meet them right where they are and to point them from right where they are toward Jesus. Our neighbor is anyone that God puts in our path or our sphere of influence and whose needs we are somehow able to address even even if it's with our simple presence. And that means that just about everybody we can do something for. But are there particular needs for encouragement that are especially prevalent or widespread or deep right now? I think so. The first thing that we want to ask is who is it that needs encouragement right at this moment? A lot has been said and written and podcasted about in the last few years about changing attitudes in society toward church and toward Christians, both inside and outside the church. There's the growing ex-evangelical movement. There's a growing experience of doubt and deconstruction that many people are dealing with. And there's much more than that, too. There's a fantastic article that was published recently by Christianity Today that took a look at this, especially in light of pandemic restrictions beginning to ease and all of us kind of starting to come out of our cocoons a little bit more. And as the world continues to open back up with varying degrees of caution and optimism, what, would it, what is a return to church going to look like? And when we say return to church, that doesn't mean just Sunday mornings, even though that that's the most visible and the most obvious place where people would return to church. This means an across-the-board church involvement. What is it going to look like when people return to church across the board? Are they going to return to church across the board? Well, Mike Moore, the author of this article, and maybe it was up there on the screen, he refers to two groups of people who are already pretty well-known from a lot of research that's been done over the last few years into American spiritual life. He talks about the nuns, and he talks about the duns. The nuns are those who don't self-identify with any particular religious affiliation, and that's most prevalent among the Zoomers and the millennial generations. The duns are those who are exiting established religious traditions, most notably Christianity. And for a variety of reasons, they are just flat out done with the church, and they're not coming back. But Moore very helpfully gives a name to a third group of people, which seems to be especially true in this post-pandemic season of reopening the world, and he calls them the ums. The ums are fond of the local church, and they were active members in the past. 
They take Jesus seriously and they want to belong to a local congregation. They're not bitter or cynical. In fact, if anything, ums are uncomfortable with not being committed to a local church body. As a result, there's a gap between their desire and their situation. They are ums because they're uncertain and hesitant about how to re-engage with the church. And as you listen to the stories of people who find themselves in, well, across the spiritual landscape of America in 2022, you can hear people in at least four different categories of ums like this. The first are the disoriented. These are the people who, through the pandemic, and they've perhaps become new parents, or maybe they've been forced to move back in with their parents. Some of them lost jobs, and they're still looking for employment. Others of them chose to leave a job and maybe change a career field altogether, and they're still adjusting to that new vocational calling. And the chaos of pandemic life has totally upset the stability of their lives, which is something that the church used to provide for them. And so amid all these major life changes, they're just not active in church anymore. They are disoriented. Second, they're the demotivated. Because of the array of problems that they see in the church, they have been re-examining their own faith. And they're wrestling with the public downfalls of esteemed pastors and spiritual leaders and the ongoing sins of racism and sexual abuse. But they don't actually want to sever ties with the church. It's just that the failures of the church are pushing them away from being part of a congregation. They're demotivated. Then they're the discouraged. That fits most closely with what we're talking about here. These people are feeling crushed under the suffering and under the collective grief of the last two years. And now, of course, there's the Ukraine war to add on top of all that. They're struggling with their mental health and their motivation. Some of their family members and their neighbors and their friends, even their fellow church members, have died. And the loss of relationships, whether it's through death or divorce or just distance somehow, has left this residue in their lives that is estranging them from the local church. They're deeply discouraged. And then the last group in here you could call the disembodied. And for these people, online worship during the pandemic, it just did not work. They could not do it. There's growing research that is showing that Sunday-focused churches, churches where the main event or the only event is what happens on Sunday mornings, are struggling to retain large sections of their congregations. These people, are, they grew more removed from their churches when the services went online, and then when congregations came back in person and started to regather, they didn't come back. They're disembodied, cut off from the body of Christ. Maybe you know people like that. Maybe you are a person like that. Even if you aren't or you don't know anybody like that, you need to be aware that a significant portion of your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates fit those descriptions in some way. And you might not have an answer to give to every one of, them, every one of their questions, but you do have something to offer them, and that something is encouragement. So what do these people need encouragement toward? What do all of us need encouragement toward? Again, there's no exhaustive list here, but coming out of Acts chapter 11, I'd suggest a few things. 
First of all, Moore's article that we talked about, it highlights the fact that many people, including many Christians, they're feeling spiritually homeless. They're without a home. They don't know a church where they fit, and perhaps they're very tentative to even try because of what the last several years have been like. And so if there's one core encouragement that they need and which we can give, it's to find a home with Jesus. And that that all sounds very spiritual and mature, doesn't it? But what does that actually mean in real life? How do you put that on the ground? What are we encouraging them toward? Well, it might help us here to do just a quick flyover of the idea of home in Scripture. And the idea of home in Scripture is connected to the presence of God. Human beings are made to be with God, to be at home with God. Not as slaves or automatons, but as beloved children and heirs of a loving father. Our true home is wherever God is. But many of our brothers and sisters, many of our neighbors, don't feel like that home with God can be found in the church anymore. But the Bible's unfolding story of home offers encouragement to us. It's a story in five acts. Five acts so far, and then there's one more to come at the end. First, in the beginning, home was what you might call a plot. It was a plot of land. It was a garden where humanity walked with God in unbroken fellowship. Well, that home was lost at the fall, but many years later and coming out of the Exodus, God told his people to to build a mobile home. You might call it property. And that served as a portable sanctuary for his presence to be near them in all of their travels. It was the tabernacle. Well, eventually, a stationary home would be built, a temple, and it was a particular place where God would dwell with his people. And in that temple, God promised, I will live among you, and I will not abandon my people Israel. But Israel, of course, over years drifted, sometimes ran headlong into disobedience and sin, and they lost that place. And even though there were attempts to rebuild it in some way, God's presence never returned, and there was not a home with them until, that is, the exile finally ended with the arrival of Jesus. And the literal presence of God became incarnate in the literal person of Jesus. But as central and supreme and world-changing as that reality is, the story of God's home and presence with his people, it doesn't stop there. After his death and resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven and he sends the promised Holy Spirit, God's own spirit, to fill up and to live directly among his people, to be present to the world through his people. So that's the progression right there, from plot to property to place to person to people. And eventually there's a time coming when God's very presence is going to fill all of creation when Jesus comes back. So what do we have to encourage people who feel like they're spiritually homeless? We have us. You have you. It's not the same thing as an invitation to church. It's an invitation to life. It's an invitation to relationship. It's an invitation to experience the presence and the love of God through you, even though we're going to mess it up sometimes. My point is this, like Barnabas, our fundamental encouragement to other people, especially the spiritually homeless, is to come home to God. And right now, for some people, God's most accessible address is you. We encourage others by making ourselves, by making God with us, available to them.
I had a whole lot more that I was going to say, but I'm going to jump ahead to just one, to an illustration here at the end. One of the best forms of encouragement that I think I've ever experienced, and if you're an athlete, then maybe you've experienced it too, is in the form of coaches. If you've ever had a good coach, you know what that's like. If you've ever had a bad coach, you know what that's like. And one of the things that makes such a difference between good coaches and bad coaches is their encouragement. A good coach is a remarkable encourager, a paraclete, you could say, even though it might not look that way on the outside to people who are, who are looking in who aren't team members. Take, for example, the NCAA tournament. I watched a few more games this year than I normally do, partly because our alma mater, the Fighting Illini, were in it. They only made it to the second round, but... It was the second round. <clears throat> Our coach, Brad Underwood, is a, is a good coach. But when you watch him stalking the sidelines during a game and shouting communication to his players, he does not look like the nicest human being that you've ever met. And yet, when you hear him talk about his players in post-game interviews and when you see them interact and when you see how his players describe him and feel about him, it's obvious that this man is an encourager. Now, we don't have to go to the NCAA in order to get some good examples of coaches. Something cool that God has done right here within our church family over the last several years is give us some remarkable inroads and connections with Purdue Polytechnic High School right here in Broad Ripple. And much of that has been in the realm of coaching. There are, some, there are numerous people from SOMA who coach at least boys' basketball and soccer teams. And I forgot uh, this morning that we've got another coach uh, heading to football, I think, down at Purdue Polytech Englewood starting in the fall. But these, these coaches for basketball and for soccer, they've had a huge impact on those teams through the way they encourage them. And I know that this is true because I interviewed one of their players this week. James Piscasio one of the coaches of the basketball team. If you've ever talked to James in real life, you know that he's just a naturally encouraging person. His players are drawn to him. They respect him. They look up to him. He's built relationships with some guys on that team with whom other people just have not been able to break in. And for some of those athletes, after school practice and getting to be with James and play ball with James, it is literally the highlight of their day. When players hear feedback from James or they hear ways to improve, they are always going to hear that alongside personal affirmation from him. Connor Hitchcock, another coach. Connor is gifted at picking up the little guy. He has the ability to see that person who has had just a terrible, awful game, and he makes a point of lifting that person up and getting him ready for what's next. Clay Taylor. Folks, it sounds like Clay Taylor's post-game speeches are something to behold. I would like to be a fly on the locker room wall for some of these. Clay encourages everyone by name, even those who didn't have any game time. He makes sure everyone feels built up, everyone feels like they have a part to play, everyone is a part of this team. Clay talks about why basketball is not all that there is to life. He expands their view of life so that basketball is not their sole focus. Billy Plant, he's the boys' soccer coach. In one game, there was a player who got injured and another player subbed in for him, 
and then proceeded to allow three goals to get scored in short order. And understandably, he was really discouraged. When he got back to the bench, he said something to a teammate about it, and Billy overheard that, and he turned to him right there in the moment and lifted this guy up, picked him up, to make sure he wasn't stuck mentally, and then went on to carry on with his coaching in the game, but then afterward texted that kid directly to check in with him and to reaffirm what he had already said before. I also happen to be married to a coach. Amy coached in the USA swimming system for about five years back in Illinois. She hasn't started here in Indy yet. And I know that I'm biased, but I'm pretty sure that she is a pretty unbelievable coach. She coaches the youngest kids and the most inexperienced swimmers. And when you see them interacting with her on, on deck, you can tell that they absolutely adore her. And they objectively get better as swimmers, too. I asked Amy what it is that she loves most about coaching. And she said that while it's wonderful to see swimmers improve and see their times drop, what really makes the most difference to her is being able to speak into their lives about who they are, saying true things about the people that they are and giving them heart, encouraging them to grow into the people that she knows they can become. Now, Amy and James and Connor and Clay and Billy, they, they usually can't bring Jesus directly into these coaching conversations at the school or on, on a swim team. But it's who they are as Christ followers and how they relate to their athletes that brings that encouragement. Now, without trying to imply that they're spiritual superheroes, I'm confident that I can describe all five of those people the way that Barnabas is a good man or a good woman, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And if they can be, so can you. So this mode of coaching, I think, is something that we can all grow into because it doesn't depend on knowing a technique. Yeah, if you're doing a sport, you're going to know some drills and things that the sport needs to know, but that's not what makes them good coaches. That's not what would make any of us good coaches. It's who we are becoming as people as we do the long, slow, sometimes painful daily work of walking step by step with the Spirit. We pay attention to the Spirit, the paraclete that Jesus has given to us so that we can become paracletes for others, so that we, just like Barnabas, can be glad when we recognize the grace of God around us. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the God who encourages. We thank you that you are the God of good news and that the good news is good indeed. Holy Spirit, we ask that this day and this week that are ahead of us, that these would be times where we know that you are near to us, that we experience your drawing close, we experience your encouragement so that we would have that to give to others. Open our eyes to see those around us who need a word like that and help us to be the people who bring it. In Jesus' name, amen.